to John chapter 7. This morning, we're back in our series in the book of John, a series that we started uh, last year, uh, took a little break for a few months, uh, jumping back into the series, a series that we've entitled That You Might Believe. And this morning, I want to look at John chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 1, and I want to read through verse verse 10, and I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as I read John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 10. John writes this, and he says, after this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For, for no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This verse is so important for not even his brothers believed him. And then Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Then verse 10, and after his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. Because, God, we are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want us this morning to consider this idea of God's way and in God's time. God's way and in God's time. You know, for better or worse, I've, I've never wanted to be one of those pastors that presented this persona of a person who has this whole spiritual thing all figured out, right? Whose faith never questions, whose confidence never wavers, or whose heart never doubts. Now, I'll just be honest, if that's the type of pastor that you're looking for, you're going to be looking for a very long time. And anyone who tries to convince you that they've made it is either trying to fool you or they are fooling themselves. It's not a facade, it's just reality. Because as I was gently reminded even this week by one of our pastors here at New Breed is that even as pastors, we're still just Christians trying to figure out how it is we walk by faith and not by sight. And the position that the Lord has called us to as pastors is not evidence of a faith that is complete. I think it's important that you know that. Right? Like, like I've not reached my glorified state. Like talk to my wife for like 30 seconds and she'll tell you I have not reached my glorified state. But here's why I say all this. Uh, this sermon this morning, if I'm being candid with you, right? Confession's good for the soul, bad for the reputation. This sermon kind of strikes at one of my greatest struggles in my faith, a struggle that I've not been shy to share with you. 
For many of you, you know about it. And so to make a long story short, and because there are other brothers and sisters who know the long story for my good and accountability and are walking with me, a weakness of my faith. And, and again, this isn't just speaker embellishment. I'm being honest with you here. A weakness of my faith. And I would be willing to bet that it might be a weakness for some of you this morning. A weakness of my faith is that I often judge the faithfulness of God based solely on whether or not he is answering my immediate prayer request the way I want. If I'm honest, that's a struggle of mine, that I judge, I evaluate the faithfulness of God based solely on whether or not he is answering my immediate prayer requests the way that I want. I sat down with one of our pastors this week and asked for accountability as I currently battle that struggle in this season that I am in right now. Accountability to help me see and believe that God is bigger than my current circumstances. Accountability to remember that God is not beholden to me and my request. Accountability to trust that God is working in my life and in this world in his way and in his time. So in many ways, the irony of the sermon is not lost on me. Just a couple of days ago, one of the sisters in the church just sent me a text just to check on me, and I told her that this was one of those weeks when I was going to stand in the pulpit and basically preach to myself and let you all listen in in the conversation. And I know I've said that before. Maybe you get tired of hearing that, but for me, just saying that is a needed reminder of the fact that God has not forgotten about me in this thing called ministry. That even as I prepare week in and week out, and it is a joy, but it is hard as I prepare week in and week out to minister to you, that our great God is so gracious that he will minister to me as well as I struggle to work out my faith with fear and trembling. So I'll just say this. I need this text this morning. I needed it this week to remind myself of what this text is uniquely positioned to teach us. That at any given moment, with any given request we might make before God, that God is working, but that work will always be God's way and in God's time. So what I want to do this morning, I'm going to let you in on the conversation that I have with myself as I just walk through this text. So the text begins in verse 1, and it says this, After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. So this gives us a great moment, right? A brief opportunity to just remind ourselves of where we've been in the story. I know we've been out of the book of John for like two months now, uh, and your memory is probably better than mine, but I needed to be reminded of what we've talked about. You know, the, the, the gospel of John, he gives us kind of the purpose of the entire book at the very end of the gospel. He says in John 20, 31, that these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. That's the reason for the series through the book of John, that you might believe. John's purpose in writing this gospel is that his readers would see this Jesus, understand who he is, the Messiah, and that people would come to place their faith in him. And so the gospel of John begins with this incredible declaration to us that Jesus is the word made flesh, that he is the fulfillment of God's promise to bring light into a dark world. 
and that Jesus' coming into the world was proclaimed, not just by the prophets of old, but it was, it was proclaimed immediately prior to Jesus' ministry by John the Baptist, that Jesus is heralded, heralded as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And according to John's account, Jesus begins his ministry in Cana when he turned water into wine. And from that point, we have seen, as we've walked through the book of John, Jesus perform miracles. We've seen him confront the religious elite of the day. We've seen him perform signs and wonders. However, what becomes clear early on in the Gospel of John is that the people began to want the signs more than they wanted the one the signs were meant to reveal. This is why Jesus says in John 2, 24 and 25, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to, to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about the man for he himself knew what was in man. And then later in John 4, 48, Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Nevertheless, in spite of Jesus knowing what was in us, he continued his ministry engaging the elite like Nicodemus and the lowly like the Samaritan woman. But then in chapter 6, something very significant occurs in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> it was the time of the Passover feast. And if you remember, we talked about it at the beginning of chapter 6, how in John's Gospel, you basically see Jesus' ministry center around festival cycles, so everything that Jesus is doing is tied to a significant festival in the lives of the Jews. So at the beginning of chapter 6, it begins at the time of, of Passover. And Jesus does two very significant things. First, if you remember, he fed the 5,000. And this miracle was coupled by the second significant event of Jesus walking on water. And we talked about why these two events were so significant, not just, not just significant in the moment, but significant, because let's be honest, feeding 5,000 with a couple of fish, a couple of loaves, that's pretty significant in and of itself. But there was a deeper theological underpinning to both of these miracles because they were celebrating the Passover. And we talked about how for the Jew, the Passover was a celebration that was bigger than just remembering that the angel of death had passed over by the blood of the lamb. During the Passover celebration, the Jews also reminded themselves of God's faithfulness to provide manna from heaven and his sovereignty as seen in his control of nature by leading them as a cloud by day and a fire by night. So what Jesus does then by feeding the 5,000 and then walking on water, we talked about how Jesus is reenacting the Passover before he recreates the Passover. And after these events, Jesus gave his challenging bread of life discourse. And towards the end of John chapter 6, he makes this statement in John 6, 54 through 56. He says, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day because my flesh is true blood. Or my, my flesh is true food and my blood is true, true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And this was a tough teaching for a lot of the people. John recounts in John 6, verse 66, how after this teaching, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus because it was too hard. 
And so Jesus then turns to his 12 and asks them, are you going to leave as well? And Peter responds with the beautiful declaration in verse 68, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. But it wasn't just that people stopped following Jesus because they understood the weight of what he was saying when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Not only did people leave, but now more than ever, people wanted to see Jesus murdered. And so we come to chapter 7, verse 1, after this, after what takes place in chapter 6, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. And then in verse 2, John identifies the new festival cycle that Jesus' ministry will focus around for the next few chapters in the book of John. And John tells us this, the Jewish festival of shelters was near. Now, If you remember back to our study in Nehemiah about midway through last year, we talked about the Festival of Shelters, also called the Festival of Booths. I have to pronounce it very clearly because when I said it in Nehemiah, somebody thought I said the Festival of Booze, and that's not what the festival was. That's a completely different festival. Um, The Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. Now, I know that every one of you who were here remember everything I said in Nehemiah 8 because that was such a life-changing sermon for you. So for the sake of, thank you, brother. So for the sake of those who might not have been here, let me just remind them of what you already know, all right? The festival of shelters was a festival that was commanded by God in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And in Leviticus 23, verses 42 through 43, God says this, you are to live in shelters for seven days. All the native born of Israel must live in shelters so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in shelters when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And again, it's talked about in a little bit more detail in Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 15. But what the festival of shelters was is ultimately it was a time of celebration where the people, we'll we'll, we'll probably see this in the weeks to come, get a little bit more into what it looked like during the time of Jesus, but the people would live in shelters for seven days. They would present offerings at the temple, and it was all meant to be a celebration, but it had a celebration for two reasons. First, and I I need you to stick with me because I promise this is going to be important in in just a few moments. First, this festival looked back. It looked back and remembered Israel's time in the wilderness when they lived in shelters, and the festival was to remind the people of God's faithfulness to provide for them when they had nothing, that God was faithful to deliver. And so it looked back, but the festival of shelters also looked forward. And this was especially true during Jesus' time when the people were again under the rule of a foreign nation. The festival looked forward to a new exodus, to the time when God and his kingdom would be made known on earth and when the people of God would experience the fullness of God's blessing. All right, so get this, right? The festival looked back on evidence of God's past faithfulness, primarily seen in deliverance, and it looked forward to the fulfillment of the promise that God had given of a new and a better exodus. So this is the context. This is the festival that framed the backdrop of this interaction between Jesus and his brothers. And so look at what takes place then beginning in verse 3. It says, so his brothers said to him, to Jesus, 
leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then here's verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. So here's what we know, just on face value. The brother's statement to Jesus wasn't a statement based out of their belief that Jesus was the Messiah. So when they say, go to Judea and show yourself, because no one does things in secret if they want public recognition, we know because of verse 5 that this wasn't a statement that was based out of a genuine belief that Jesus was the Messiah. Not even his own brothers believed that at the time. Now we know that some would later because James, one of the brothers of Jesus, would become one of the leading apostles over the church in Jerusalem. You read about him in Acts. So they would eventually believe, but here in this moment, they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now here's the thing. It's not that they didn't believe he could do some incredible things, right? Because they saw the signs too. His brothers, if you go back to John chapter 2, his brothers got invited to the wedding at Cana as well. So they saw Jesus turn water into wine. It's highly unlikely that what transpired in between chapters 2 and 6 remained somehow unknown to the brothers of Jesus. They believed that he was able to do some amazing things. They simply hadn't bought into the idea that he was who he said he was. Now this reality demands that we just kind of pause for a little bit of reflection. Because the lack of belief in Jesus by his own brothers, as John tells us in verse 5, is positioned to teach us something that we desperately need to be aware of. Hear me. Proximity to Jesus is not the same thing as faith in Jesus. Proximity to Jesus is not the same thing as faith in Jesus. Again, consider his brothers. They grew up around Jesus. They probably got tired of hearing their mother Mary tell that same old story of the angel coming to her and declaring who Jesus is. They saw Jesus do incredible things, but still at this point, not even his brothers believed in him. Well, what did they not believe? They did not believe that he was the Messiah. They did not believe that Jesus was Lord. All right, that didn't get you, so let me bring it into today. They're not the only people who have been in proximity to Jesus without a faith in Jesus. There are people who grow up in the church. There are people who faithfully show up to church week in and week out. There are people who have seen the evidence that Jesus is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than people think or ask, but still they fail to grasp who Jesus is. I need you to hear me. Jesus is not just a powerful prophet. Jesus is not just a magnificent miracle worker. Jesus is not simply a model of morality. Jesus is the Messiah who is both Savior and Lord. And until we submit to him as Savior and kneel before him as Lord, until we recognize this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we might be in proximity to Jesus. We might know some of the people of Jesus. We might even see evidence for Jesus, but we will never experience the blessing of the kingdom that is found in Jesus. And just to be absolutely clear of what I'm talking about, when I say the blessing of Jesus, I'm not talking about health, wealth, 
or prosperity. I'm talking about a peace that surpasses understanding. I'm talking about a comfort that transcends your circumstances. I'm talking about a balm for your battered heart. I'm talking about salvation for your soul. And not even his brothers believed in him. And if what John says in verse 5 is true, which we have no reason to believe it's not, that it not even his brothers believed in him, then, then it begs a very important question. Why then make the statement to Jesus, go to Judea so that your people can see all the works that you are doing? Why did they want him to go? And again, for this, we really have to pay attention to their cultural context. You see, in the ancient Near East, the culture operated very much out of a shame-honor context. Now, that's, that's very different than the world you and I are in here in the United States. Because in a shame-honor context, what you do and how you live has ramifications for how the community as a whole sees not only you, but your entire family as a result. And the reason this is hard for us to fully grasp contextually is because we live in a very individualistic society. I mean, we've talked about this before. We've, we've in America, kind of lost the notion of community. And so what that means is that if you or I screw up, there very well may be some people in your immediate kind of circles who throw some shade at you, but by and large, society won't know any different. Even more, your family won't be shamed by society for what you do. And vice versa, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, praise God. Vice versa, you, you won't be shamed for what your family does. Let me, let me try to give you an example of this. I was talking to my wife about this um, because she's a better theologian than me and gives better application. Uh, but I was talking about this idea of the shame, honor, context, and she shared a helpful example. Um, India is still very much a shame-honor society. And so while Aaliyah was in India, she met a, a young woman there who was 19, who was a live-in teacher, um, and, and was kind of pursuing a career as that. Now, he, here's why that's interesting, because normally around that age, women are either pursuing marriage or they are, they are in the process of just being married. But the reason that she was pursuing this career, the reason she was able to be a, a live-in teacher was the organization that kind of took her in, took women who had been shamed, and, and not even because of anything she had done, she was experiencing the shame of something that her father had done, which meant that no man in India would ever consider marrying her because of the sins of her father. And so she was shamed by society because of what someone else had done. It was familial shame. And so Jesus' culture is very much like this. Here's why it matters. His brothers know that what happened at the end of, of chapter 6 in the life of Jesus has ramifications for who they are. Right? Because prior to Jesus telling people to eat my flesh and drink my blood, like we got to acknowledge like Jesus was killing it in society. Like people were following him. People were praising him. People were honoring him. And so by extension, his family was being honored. His family was being recognized because of their connection to Jesus, meaning that Jesus' honor in the eyes of society was their honor. But on the flip side, Jesus' shame would be their shame. 
And so when all the people at the end of chapter 6 start abandoning Jesus, his brothers are worried about what this will mean for them and their standing in society. They want the honor. That's why in verse, it says in verse 4, For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. For, you do these, for if you do these things, show yourself to the world. So let me, let me paraphrase it for you. Jesus, you need to go get your standing back. You need to be recognized. You need to get people on your side because we want the earthly benefits that come from you being honored. We don't necessarily want you, but we want the earthly things that you can do for us. All right, that didn't get you. So again, let me bring it to 2024. Jesus, I'll follow you, but you have to do what I want. You have to answer every prayer the way that I want and on my terms. But can I tell you something that we need to understand? Once again, the brother's statement to Jesus is positioned to again teach us a very significant truth. Here it is. Faith is never established by getting everything you want from Jesus. But a lack of faith is revealed when you don't get what you want. Let me say that one more time, that faith is never established by getting everything you want from Jesus. But a lack of faith is revealed when we don't get what we want. In other words, if Jesus only looks good to us when everything is going our way, but the moment things get hard, we stop trusting in him, then perhaps it wasn't actually Jesus we saw as good. Maybe it was just the stuff we thought he could do for us. And their lack of faith is revealed when things aren't going their way. But I want to press in a little bit more. Maybe I need it because I know it's, it's weighty, but it's important to see. Notice what they actually say to Jesus. Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Does that sound familiar to you? Because Satan tried to get Jesus to do the exact same thing. He took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Do you remember? The reason that's significant is because the temple was the central point in Jerusalem where all the people were. And he says, you go up on there, throw yourself off. This is what, what he says. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In other words, what Satan is saying to Jesus is throw yourself off this temple. The angels are going to come down and save you. It's pretty hard for people to deny who you are if the very angels of God come and rescue you. Both Satan and Jesus' brothers' request all centered around the same thing. Make yourself known on my terms. But can I contrast that with how Jesus actually taught us to pray? Thy kingdom come. 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Jesus prayed, God, make yourself known on your terms. Oh, and this is hard, but I'm going to say it anyway. I wonder. If I'm honest, I wonder it about myself. I wonder if sometimes our requests of the fa- to the Father don't sound more to him like Satan's temptation in the wilderness than Jesus' model of prayer. God, do what I want you to do on my terms and in my way. Prove yourself to me. Opposed to God, not my will, but yours be done. So this is what Jesus' brother requests of him. Go and make yourself known so that we can receive the benefits. Right? We want you for the earthly blessings that you are able to provide. But I want you to notice Jesus' response in verses 6 through 8, and it's beautiful. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you. But it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. And I love this. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going to this festival because my time is not yet fully come. So let's walk through this. Jesus says at the beginning of verse 6 there and at the end of verse 8 that my time has not come. Now, when Jesus says this, it sounds like something he says multiple times throughout the book of John, that it's a very significant theme, but it's different. Because throughout the book of John, one of the themes that we've started to see, and we'll see it more as John progresses, is this statement by Jesus that my hour or my aura has not yet come, right? And when Jesus says that throughout the book of John, he's typically referring to his death and his resurrection and his exaltation. And he's saying, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. My hour hasn't come. It's a very specific statement with a very significant word. But what Jesus says here is actually very different. He doesn't use the word aura. He uses the word kairos. And he says, my time has not yet come. He uses a different word that literally translates into time or season. And so in other words, what Jesus is simply saying is that it isn't time for me to go to the festival yet. That's what he's saying. He's not talking necessarily about his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. He's just saying, listen, it's not time for me to go to the festival, festival yet. It's not that he's not planning to go because we read in verse 10, and his bro- after his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up not openly but secretly because even Jesus knew that it was a requirement of the Old Testament law that everyone 18 years of age or older be present at the three main pilgrimage festivals, right? So Passover, Pentecost, and um, the fest and the, and the festival of shelters. Side note: Pentecost didn't originate in Acts; it was an Old Testament feast. But anyway, and what Jesus is communicating is very significant: that when I move and when I act, it's not on your terms, and it's not on your time. And Jesus explains why. In verse 7, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So Jesus is giving a little insight to his brothers. He's basically saying, I'm not going to go because I know something that you don't know. I know that if I go right now, it won't have the desired outcome you are hoping for. 
You think if I go, I'll get all my followers back and your honor will be restored. But what I know is that if I go right now, they will kill me. Again, that's verse one. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill them. Jesus knows this, but his brothers didn't. Now, again, this points us to a very significant truth that you and I need to remember when it comes to the requests and the petitions that we present before God. And please hear me, we should. My goal in this sermon is not to tell you don't ask Jesus for stuff. I mean, you can ask him for earthly stuff and he's cool with that. Right? Like, ask him for healing. Ask him for that promotion. Right? Ask him for a spouse. Ask him. But the truth that we have to hold on to as we ask is that God's invitation to pray is not a guarantee that we will get everything that we want. But here's what we do know. We serve a good God. All right, let me say it like this. Our God is a God who is nothing but good who desires nothing but good and who gives nothing but good. Therefore, if he withholds from us, we have to trust that it's because he is acting in goodness towards us. And I don't know, maybe, just maybe God knows that if he gave us the thing we are asking for, it wouldn't turn out the way we think it would. Like we have to remember that we serve a God who sits outside of time and space. That's hard for us to grasp, right? We serve a God who right now sees the beginning, the middle, and the end all at once. And we serve a God who has promised to do good to us. And what that means is maybe the reason that God is not giving you that job that you prayed for is because he already knows who's going to get laid off in two years when the company downsizes. Maybe the reason God isn't immediately healing your child of that sickness is because he knows what would happen if they were at school today. Maybe the reason God isn't giving you the recognition you desire is because he knows what will happen in your heart the moment that you get it. Maybe the reason God isn't giving you the desires of your heart is because he cares more about your sanctification than he does your stuff. And what if our good God actually knows what is good for us? And the reason we struggle with that is because we can't see what he sees and we don't know what he knows. Or maybe we could look at it a different way. Maybe if God doesn't give us what we ask, maybe it isn't necessarily because he knows something about it that we don't. Maybe God doesn't give us what we ask even though he knows it would play out exactly like we think it would play out. And it would be our good, but God still says no, is because he has something better for us. I mean, think about it. What is it they want from Jesus? They want recognition. They want honor. And neither of those things is intrinsically bad. But what Jesus has in mind for them is a better recognition and a greater honor, not that comes from men, but one that extends in glory where their name is not recognized by the masses, but instead it's recognized in the throne room of eternity. They want honor among men, but Jesus has in mind an honor that comes with being seated with him in glory. And what if the good things that would be for our good would suffocate the better thing that God has for us? But I love what he says to his brothers. My time has not yet arrived. But your time is at hand. Your time is at hand. 
One commentator pointed this out, and I thought it was such a helpful way to summarize it. He basically says that what Jesus is saying is that what you need most is not for me to do what you want. What you need most is to go to the festival. But consider why. Go back to what this festival is all about. It's looking back at the faithfulness of God who has proven himself And it looks forward to the fulfillment of the promise that he actually did give, right? We said earlier that faith is not established by getting everything you want, but a lack of faith faith is revealed when we don't get what we want. But here Jesus tells his brothers exactly where faith is rooted. Faith is rooted in what God has done, what he promised to do, and not in what he might do. Faith is rooted in what God has done, what he promised to do, and not in what he might do. But here's where we get all jammed up. When what God might do doesn't happen, we easily forget what he has already done and what he does promise to do. I'm going to give it to you the best I got. I am trying to learn to declare that I'm so glad that God works in his way and in his time, even when it's not easy for me. Because his way is always better and his timing is always perfect. And here's how I know it. I know it by looking back. Because when the people wanted a conquering warrior, God knew they needed a suffering servant. And when the people wanted deliverance from political oppression, God knew we needed a deliverance from spiritual slavery. And my Bible tells me that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus showed up and humbly lived the life that we should have lived. He was innocent under the law and perfect in the eyes of God, but he was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities and the punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. You see, they tried Jesus as a criminal, but they couldn't find any fault with him. But they convicted him anyway. They stripped him naked. They beat him bloody. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they led him up a hill called Calvary. They put nails in his hands. They put nails in his feet. They put a spear in his side and they crucified him on a tree that he created. And he died on that cross and they put him in a tomb and he stayed in that tomb on Friday. He stayed in that tomb on Saturday. And then Sunday morning, he rose from the dead and with God's way and in God's time, sin lost its power and death lost its sting and the grave lost its hold. And amazing as what God did for us is, he has promised us even more in the future. So not only do we look back in belief, but we look forward to the better things that God has promised. But please hear me. He never promised that your life would be easy. He never promised that you would be loved by everyone. He never promised that you would have every request that you make. He never promised you health, wealth, or prosperity. But what did he promise? He promised that he would never leave you and he would never forsake you. What he did promise was that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing would be able to separate you from his love in Christ Jesus. What he did promise was that he who began a good work in you would be faithful to see it to completion. 
And so we can't place our faith in what God might do. We place our faith in what God has done and in what he promises he will do. And in that, we have to trust. We trust. And it's a hard trust that indeed God is for us and he is not against us. And here's what I'm fighting to believe this morning. And you could pray for me as I pray for you. When it seems like God is so far away from me, when it seems like the response is always no, 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 I'm fighting to look back at what he has done and the faithfulness that he has proven. And I'm fighting to look forward to believe that he will accomplish everything that he said he would accomplish. I'm looking back and I'm looking forward, fighting to believe that it's just gonna be better in God's way and in God's time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that John's longing would be true of us, that we would just believe this, that we would believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I pray that we would look back on the cross and the empty tomb and we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are not only a faithful God, but you are a good God. And Lord, I pray that in those moments when we're tempted to just look at today or look at tomorrow or look at what you might do, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by the majesty of what you have actually promised to do. And that we would know that you are indeed for us and not against us that you are fighting for our good and our holiness, that you will never leave us, never forsake us. In Jesus' name, amen.